Okay, I will begin by looking to Lee and asking what blanks I missed. I got them all. All right. It's a Thanksgiving miracle. Um, okay. Thank you, Mark. Mm. Okay. So, if you guys don't have questions like you did the last week or so, I've got places we can go, but I'll open it up for any questions you might have about what we covered this morning, or really this whole 10-verse section as it's pretty unified whole. Um, any questions? Jeremy's ready with a microphone. The song didn't. So my question has to do with uh, involving people in prayer, which I think is good for the unity of the body and things like that. But yeah. uh, I had a situation a few years ago. I'm just wanting your reaction to it. Sure. Uh, I got an email from somebody I did not know about a situation I was not familiar with. Somebody's little girl was deathly ill and begging for prayers. And um, also in the email was a request to send this to as many people as you know and ask them to pray as well. And then for a little guilt trip, it was added on, well, what if it was your little girl? Wouldn't you want as many people to pray as possible? And wouldn't you, you know, so act accordingly and do this. I'm just wondering what your comment is. I, I know other people have this idea of the more numbers, the more likely it is to get answered to something like that. And I just think that's uh, maybe pertinent here because Paul was asking for prayers, but I don't think it was a numbers game he was trying to play. So a little comment. Thank you. Well, and Paul, of course, didn't live in a day with digital global media. Uh, it is really difficult to pray for people you don't know. I don't know if you've experienced that. It, I mean, unless you do these vague sort of Lord help the Christians in China, you know, it's really hard to pray for people you don't know. It's hard to labor in prayer for people you don't know. It's one of the reasons why sometimes in our prayer chain, people will, will try to pare it down because you may care about your old college roommate's son, but it's really hard for us, if we don't know who this person is, to, to pray for them. So in the, in the first instance, I think Paul is using existing relationships where I think that's great. Call upon people you know. Yet prayer, we want to avoid two errors with prayer. We want to avoid, on the one hand, this notion which can be easy for people who believe in the sovereignty of God, as I do, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need my advice. His plan's better than my plan. That is clearly wrong, but I, I'm prone to that. You know, He doesn't need my advice. He knows what he's doing. His plan was formed before the foundation of the world. Amen. On the other hand, this notion that prayer becomes like a sort of magic spell, and you can power it up with more people and pass this along and you know, if you get 300 like, for every like, you get an extra prayer point. And it, that, I mean, no, you get these things on Facebook, and it's just clearly it looks, it smells like, um, it smells like, like some sort of, uh, what? Like a chain letter? Yeah, like, or like, or like, yeah, spiritual pyramid scheme or something. I mean, it's, no. And, and so I, we want to avoid that as well. I would say, first and foremost, the assumption is we're praying for other people. We're praying for the people in our body. And Paul might give a report for the Christians in Jerusalem. And they might do a fundraiser for them, in which case he's raising support for people they don't know. But he at least knows them as a bridging, bridging gap. So I'd say there's nothing wrong in praying for this guy's daughter. But I, I certainly think guilting people into it and... If I can just get 400,000 more prayers, something will happen. Like God's waiting for the ticker counter. Once it hits, you know, 
four million views, then I'll do it, is, is wrong. And yet, the other danger is, well, it doesn't matter how fervently we... That's the other problem I can have. I can just sort of... God, here's what I think would be good, but you'll do what's right, done. And we're again told to labor in prayer. Paul talks about he doesn't give stop praying certain things. And so it, it's, you want to avoid sort of the ritual magic spell approach, but you also want to avoid the sort of, uh, here's what I think, but you'll do its best, thanks, and done. That's not going to lead to a vibrant prayer life either. Were um, you looking for more? Or is that... Yeah, yeah. The, the primary thing, the Bible assumes we're praying for people we know or who are known to us, or at the very least, the people we know are known to us. It's one of the reasons we'll ask for names. I have a friend. Okay, does your friend have a name? It's really, give me something that makes it easier to pray for, for this person. It's easier if I have a name um, than if I don't. And it's certainly easier if we know the person than if we don't. Um, it's just hard to labor in prayer for people you don't know. At least I find that to be the case. Um, so... Any other questions? Oh, Steve. I'm still a little unclear about praying for people who do not belong to God. Most, no, that's, that is uh, the overwhelming majority of prayers that I can think of that are evangelistic. Pray for the workers, not the people hearing the work. Not that I think that would be unbiblical, but as regards to unbelievers, the okay, so you got Jesus in John. Pray that the Lord would send workers for the harvest, right? So, he, not that it'd be wrong to pray for the harvest, but he directs the prayer to the Christians who God might raise up to go speak to the harvest. Um, Paul is asking for prayer for himself that he might speak well. He's not praying that people would. Uh, now, obviously, he wants people to get converted. I don't want to make it sound as though we ought not to pray for the conversion of unbelievers. But the biblical emphasis puts the responsibility more on us, right? Pray that God might raise people up to speak. Pray that I might speak. And not just pray that somehow God saves my sister's brother, you know, my sister's brother's me. So that doesn't work. Um, Ah, that there be a Freudian slip. I don't know. Um, but that's the emphasis. There's nothing wrong with it. Can anyone think of any prayers for the actual recipients? There might be. I think there's at least one, but there's not many. The, the overwhelming weight, and this is simply a matter of patterns and emphasis. I don't want to suggest for a second it's wrong to pray for a particular person's salvation. I'm just saying, biblically, we're, the direction is more to the one speaking, more often than not. Um, can anyone think of any examples of prayers for a particular person's salvation in Scripture? There aren't many, if there are any. Um, and again, not saying that's wrong. I pray for that the Lord would reveal himself to my children just about every day. Um, but what I ought to be praying even more than that is the Lord would use me. But notice how that gets emphasis on me. If I just pray that God reveals himself to my kids, I'm kind of passive in that, I'm just sitting on the sidelines. Lord, let Serena and I model truth and speak truth. Well, I might have to actually do something, right? So um, as regards to unbelievers, and we're, we're told to simply ask whatever seems good to us. I mean, that's kind of the standard, even in, in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, when they get together and they decide what to do with the Gentiles, three times it seems good to them. It seems good to them. So when we get together and pray, we don't know how to pray as we ought. I don't know 
whether ultimately Liz getting a salon set up in her house is part of God's perfect eternal plan or not. It seems good to us, but the reasons she gave it seems good to me, so I gladly pray, right? And God tells me to do that, and God's not going to say to me, no, silly, that's not the best plan. Now, he might... He will do the best plan. And I might find out, we might find out that we're praying didn't happen, in which case we need to say, I guess, Dad knows best. But we're told to just come with what seems good to us. So if your neighbor is trying to get a new job and he asks you to pray for him, I don't see any reason you couldn't. I don't see much biblical modeling of that. I mean, it's not a big emphasis of Scripture, but I see no reason why you couldn't, Lord. It seems good to me that my neighbor might be able to better be able to provide for his family. He's struggling. Could you... See, I mean, there's a freedom and a liberality in prayer that we have that I don't want to restrict. I certainly don't see a whole lot of modeling of that. I mean, if that's the majority of our prayers, something's probably off, but I don't see any reason not to. Is that what you're getting when you say praying for unbelievers? Or what do you, is there a finer point to what you're asking? To me, I was seeing a division that, yes, pray for Christians. Yes, that is the that leaves yeah. a lot of people out. Yeah, yes, the the it's more the notion that we have a responsibility for each other. Part of my point about uh, perseverance of the saints as a corporate activity is that we are meant to be bound together, uh, bonded together. When we speak about church membership, it's membership like members of a body membership. Uh, Romans 12, um, for we are, we are dear, we are members of one another. And so in the church, we're supposed to replicate and even transcend the relationships of the family so that Jesus can say to Peter when he says, see, we've left everything. I tell you, Peter, no one's left mother, father, um, brother, sister, children who will not in this life receive mothers, fathers, brothers, sons, daughters. That's got to be the church. And then the church becomes... The, one of the metaphors that, that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Timothy 3 is calling the church God's household, God's family. We talked about the household code. So we have an absolute responsibility for each other. It's not optional. It's not, uh, it transcends our familial bonds. Whatever bonds you have with your biological children, your wife, your parents, these bonds are more real. So Jesus can say, who is my mother and my father and my brother and my sister? Um, I don't think he says father. Who is my mother and my brother and my sister? But whoever does the will of God. So in a very real sense, these bonds transcend that. So we have an re- absolute responsibility for each other, and that is particular to this local church. I do not have a responsibility of the same sort for a church down the street. Now, I want to do them well, and I'll pray for them as I'm able to, but... I, I don't have. I haven't made that type of commitment for their discipleship, and they haven't made that commitment to me that we've made to each other, being part of a body, being part of a household. That's a different household of God down the street. They're all part of one body, but they're they're a different church. And so, I think of it sort of in circles of responsibility and emphasis. Um, use the example. Let's say some terrible tragedy befell somebody in our body. Their, their house burnt down. And due to some glitch or some loophole, the insurance company wasn't going to pay for it. And let's just assume it's the biggest sympathy case you can think of. They did nothing wrong. It's not their fault. It's just they've had this terrible thing happen to them. I would say if they're part of this body, we must care for them. We must supply their need. Um, we must do what needs to be done and take care of them. Right? Um, 
if they were part of another body locally, I'd say it's a good thing. I might exhort people to. I might say, hey, have you considered this? I wouldn't tell someone they have to in the way that I would. We need to care for Anna in our body. We need to. Shame on us if we don't. We must take care of someone who's weak and struggling in our body. No questions about that. I would not say the same thing about someone in the similar case at another church. I might say, I encourage you to do it. Um, I think it'd be a good thing to do it. But if you felt called to other ministries and other good works, I would have no challenge for you. Well, in the same way, we're told to First uh, Timothy 2, pray for kings and for rulers and for all. So there's a place where we're praying for unbelievers. Now there, um, let me turn there to First Timothy 2. Because if you can't quote it, look it up, right? Okay. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to know the knowledge of the truth. So there, when we pray for our governing officials, Lord, we're praying that they would have the grace and the wisdom to rule justly, to rule righteously, um, that they might um, you know, reward good and punish evil, and that we would be good citizens who are submitting to that so we can live these quiet, dignified lives and not, you know, if we can, let's, let's keep a low profile, basically, is the essence of the prayer there. So it's not fundamentally, but he is linking with salvation. This is good in the sight of God, desires all men to be saved. So by implication, I'm praying for the salvation of senators, congressmen, people like that, kings, uh, potentates. So um, it's more you, I guess my answer would be this, Steve. You must and have a responsibility to pray for the people in this body, to pray for your spiritual family. You are free to pray for whoever else you like as well. Okay. There you go. There you go. So there's no check-off list that you can't pray for somebody or something. Um, unless you're praying something you know biblically is against God's will, um, then I'd, I'd say don't pray that. <laughs> um, um, but apart from knowing where God hasn't spoken and where we have liberty, pray. Praise seems good to you. But pray, being ready for dad to know best, right? Um, you know, don't do what my kids sometimes do, or I used to, more so I used to do as a kid. I found this letter. I wanted to go see, uh, I think it was um, Return of the Jedi. And I wrote my dad this, I know you love me, and I know you're going to do, I mean, it was terrible. It was like, it was, the, it was a six-year-old's attempt at emotional blackmail. It was so obvious. Um, you know, don't pray like that. Um, but pray like a child who expects his father to give him good things and not to give him stones and scorpions, um, but he'll give him bread and fish. Is that getting where you're getting at, Steve? Okay. Other questions? Oh, Liz. It's like, what do you mean you might not get that salon? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question. I've talked to a lot of women just either at work or just in general, some of my friends who have children that have fallen away, mm. what is, what would be the response for that? Because they're like, well, I've, you know, I'm going to pray for them and hope they come back or, or they're just not living for the Lord. Like, what do you say in those situations where they have children who aren't? First, don't ever stop praying. Um, 
This will link with a question I'm surprised Steve didn't ask. So I'll ask it anyway, Steve. No? Which is, if you believe, and I believe, we did a series two years ago on election and predestination. If you believe um, people's names are written in the Book of Life from the foundation of the world, which I think the Bible plainly says, then how can praying for someone's salvation do anything? Either they're in the book, in which case they will come to faith, or they're not in the book, in which case you're not going to change anything. Um, And so I would say, the more something's heavy on my heart, the more expectantly I pray for it. And my thinking goes something like this. Is it a good thing for me to pray for Abner's salvation? Is that a Bible reveal? That'd be something to please God. Well, from 1 Timothy 2, I think so. Did this good thing that's on my heart come up from my own righteousness, from my own inherent goodness? Did it just well up from the spring of good Jeremy? Of course not. So this good desire in my heart has come from the Father of lights from above, and it's come strongly and repeatedly. Why might that be? Now, I I would hope that the more something's on my heart, it's because God's putting on my heart, and God intends to do something about it. I'm praying hopefully. And you hear stories of people who've labored in prayer for their children for years and years and years to have them come back. So on the one hand, I say, don't, don't become discouraged. Don't give up in prayer. The second thing is I don't think the Bible makes a one-to-one promise that if you parent right, your kids will be believers. I, I know some will quote the uh, proverb, um, if you train a child up in the right way, when he's old, he'll not depart. We can get to that at another time. I don't think that's what that means. But more to the point, go to Isaiah 1. Um, the grief of having rebellious, unbelieving children is a grief that God shares with us. Um, so on the one hand, I'd say you're in, you're in, you have a God who sympathizes. So God says this in um, Isaiah 1, uh, verse 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So God has identified himself as a parent with rebellious children. Um, Now that said, the Proverbs do speak a lot about how the parenting will affect and I don't know, again, I'm, I'm a Calvinist in, in that sense, but it's clear parenting affects the spiritual outcome of the children. The Proverbs, you'll save his soul from death. I mean, there, clearly there's an interaction, right? There, there, there is a cause and effect. There is some level of effect. If your kid is rebelling hor- horribly, I think it's a fair question. Did, did, did my husband and I or my wife and I, depending on who's asking the question, did we drop the ball? Did we fail? I think Proverbs would suggest... That is possible. So on the one hand, you can't say, if you parent perfectly, your kids will all be Christians. On the other hand, you can't say, it doesn't matter how you parent, your kids will be Christians or not. No, the Proverbs make it clear there's a, there's a cause and effect. So if a kid's blowing up spectacularly, I would absolutely ask the question, did, you, <laughs> is there anything you did to contribute to this? Because the Proverbs make it clear, probably. But if... Having a rebellious child automatically indicted the parent. I don't think God could identify himself as a parent with rebellious children in Isaiah 1 without indicting himself, which he's clearly not doing. So, sorry, you've asked a big question, and I'm doing what I do, which is talking. Um, 
so, so don't give up in prayer. Don't, don't become, um, don't get discouraged. And, and pray and ask God for the thing you want. And, and hope and trust he's not mocking you. He isn't putting this on your heart and burdening you in prayer with this thing just to laugh in your face. Uh, pray ex- we, should, we should pray expecting our Father to give us the things we're praying for. I mean, Jesus, I know the health and wealth and name it and claim it people do terrible, horrendous things with that. But we should not pray expecting our Father is going to mock us and be like, you want this, huh? <gasps> no. Yeah. We should expect the things that are burdening our hearts our Father cares for us, He loves us, He's given, especially as those things line up with God's revealed will in Scripture. Um, so I, I would, the short version, the short version of what I just said, it doesn't mean they necessarily failed, but I think an evaluation of where they may have failed would be in order and helpful and good. Don't give up just because you've been praying for your kid for 20 years. Don't stop now. I, I know of stories of people who've labored in prayer for, for decades only to have their children or their loved ones come to faith in the end. And um, know that your God sympathizes with the pain. I mean, there's a couple of illustrations God uses. The parent and child, the cuckolded husband, the husband whose wife is running around on him. And these are all pictures of God's pain and anguish over the faithlessness and rebellion and the idolatry of his people. So we have a God who sympathizes, who's not going to be like, you know, suck it up. But rather, he says, I too have children who rebel. Um, and clearly it grieves him. So that would be my sh- medium-sized answer. Simeon, behind Ethan. Can't say it's a short answer because I talked for a fair bit. But. So on that vein, um, at the end of Colossians, there is the uh, shout-out to Epaphras mm. and how he always struggles in his prayers for the other believers. Mm. What does that struggling look like? How do we kind of get to struggling in prayer? Because most of the time for me, prayer is like saying thanks for the meal and saying thanks for the day and saying thanks for what I have, which is fine, but I think there's more, and I'm not really sure where the more is and how to get to the more. Give me a second. I just want to see what the Greek is real fast here. Um, it could either mean labor, it's either going to be agonizomai, or it's going to be the wrestling one. Let me see. Um, Colossians. What's the verse? Colossians um, 4? 4.12. 4.12. Okay, give me one second here. I did not prepare Colossians this morning, so i got to do this on the fly. Oh, that's fine. Um, great Epaphras, slave of Christ Jesus. Always, okay, striving. Okay, hold on. Bedag. To gauge in a contest, to fight or struggle. Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I will give an attempt. What I mean when I'm not entirely sure is I don't have texts that say this is the definition of spiritually striving. I think a picture of it is Jacob wrestling the angel. I'm not letting you go till you bless me, right? Um, and that's the language, wrestling in prayer, laboring in prayer, striving in prayer, um, being the persistent widow. It's probably tied, I would say it's likely tied up in repeated intercessions, pleadings, coming before God, not growing weary. I mean, because Jesus not only says to pray, but to pray like a widow who's banging on the judge's door who wants justice. 
Pray like Trump is appealing to courts. Pray, pray like you want to be, I mean, just constantly. You're just knocking on that door. You're the, the second the office opens, you're there knocking. I mean, pray like that. Well, that's going to take endurance, perseverance. Um, the temptation is going to be, I left my request, and I'm done. And pray like somebody whose guests arrived in the middle of the night, and you've got to wake up your neighbor because you need bread. Pray like that. And so um, I would say it's tied up in that. I know I've read some spiritual biographies where people talk about laboring and agonizing. I don't know if I could parse out what it means, but it would just be um, the act of persisting in sincerely, and not just through vain repetition, but really just keeping this before God. Um, I, I'd say it's caught up in that, tied up in that. Epaphras, when he's praying for them, isn't just doing what I'm tempted to do. Bless him. I mean, no, because what amazes me about Paul is like really praying through it. I mean, you think of his prayer in Ephesians. He doesn't just say, Lord, let him know Jesus better. My pray that you be rooted and grounded in faith, might be strengthened to your inner man by his spirit, so that being united with Christ, you might grasp together along with all the saints what is the height, the breadth, the width, the depth, the love of Christ that passes all. I mean, Paul is specific. Not just with the goal, but the means to the goal. I mean, he's, he's got the whole Venn diagram out there as he's praying, um, right? I mean, so, so laboring in prayer, I think, is, would be really devoting your heart and mind to it, really thinking it through, and really bringing that again and again and again before God. Might, I mean, if, where's Carol's not here? Oh, he is Carol. I'd love to hear your thoughts on wrestling and laboring in prayer. Carol taught an ABF on prayer. So <laughs> do you have anything you'd like to add or say to that, Carol? Okay, while you uh, get your thoughts together to continue, Jeremy. Um, uh, <laughs> he knows me too well. Well, I just like your quoting of Ephesians. The one I memorized is the one in Colossians. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're right, Paul, just great details about every every spiritual thing you could imagine in praying that people would set their, uh, maybe strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the adherence of the saints in light. So he's praying that people would base their joy on the inheritance that they have as a believer and all the other things that he prays. Um, so, Yeah. It's just, uh, there's, no, there's no end to the things you can pray for. And uh, somebody in the class made a joke about we spend too much time praying about the arthritis in our big toe, you know. It's, we, should be, right. we should be praying about the bigger things. Well, that's, um, that's one of the reasons why I uh, was so blessed when Mark and Jamie started suggesting developing prayer. Because it's not that we shouldn't be praying for the arthritis in the big toe or the travel mercies or the cold. But there are all these things biblically we're not praying that we ought to be praying. And so it's in addition to, Lord, help me get the job. Lord, help my car not break down. Lord, I mean, I don't want, I mean, I remember someone once, I'll pause, this is an aside. Someone I saw online making fun of someone because they prayed for a parking space. Why not? <laughs> now, if all you're praying for is parking spaces and you're not praying, Lord, strengthen me by your might to my inner man. So that by, if you're not praying the really serious, important things, and you're just praying for a parking space, that, that ain't right. But if you're praying constantly, why not? Why not? Um, I wouldn't make that the emphasis of your prayer, but if it matters to you, 
Why not? I mean, we have a freedom of access, and I don't want to restrict that with like, but, but you better bring some actually serious things. They better be important. Um, Jeremy, can, since I'm still holding the microphone. Yes! The, this is going back to uh, something that was said just a little bit ago, but I, I don't want to dig, I don't want you to have to dig in any deeper in this, but First uh, John 5. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the request made of him. So there's praying in the will of God, and we have confidence. Okay, so, and then I'm going to ask you this. Second uh, Peter says that, uh, let's see if I got it here. The Lord's not sh- slow about his promise, uh, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's if you fair. can say that it's God's will. Doug, I mean, you're asking the same question I walked up and asked John MacArthur about the second before I left. So that's why I said it's only fair. Um, no, so the, so, so the question being, if John, you're synthesizing John and Peter. If John says, whatever we pray according to his will, we know we've received. And if first, second Peter says, God does not desire anyone to perish, then can we conclude it is not God's will that anyone perish? Therefore, if we pray that a particular person not perish, it is according to his will, and therefore we know we have the answer to the thing we prayed for. Is that, in essence, what you're saying? Yeah, fair enough. I don't think that's exactly what Peter's saying. Let me go there. That must maybe a weasel out, but um, let me show you why. Go to go to First Peter, Second um, Peter. I mean Second Peter, the passage you're referencing, um, chapter, three. chapter three. Yeah. Um, I don't think speak, Peter's speaking to that. It's not that Peter's saying God does want people to perish. I think what he's saying. Well, I'll show you what I'll argue it's saying. Um, Okay, what particular verse is it? Nine, okay. So, um, the context is God appears to be delaying. There are going to be people who arise who say, hey, I thought you said he was coming back, right? Um, Verse four, for they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They believe in uniformitarianism. They deliberately overlook this, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. By means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perishing. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now existed are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that um, any. Now, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that the any is of you. He's already qualified it. Uh, the Lord is not slow in his promises towards you, not wishing that any, I think, of you should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If I took this straightly, if, if what he's saying is God is delaying his return so that people will not perish. Um, if, if, I, if he doesn't mean God is intending on gathering his flock, he's talking to Christians, God's not slow towards you. He doesn't want any of you to perish. I would suggest that by waiting, 
due to the birth rate, far more people are perishing if Jesus returned today than if he returned in the first century. Billions more, in fact, right? Um, so I, I think all he's saying is basically, guys, I know Jesus seems to be taking a while, but it gave you time to come to faith, didn't it? It's given your kids some time to come to faith, doesn't it? He's, he wants all of you to come to faith. I don't, I'm, don't think he's looking beyond that. I, I'm not trying to press it too hard, but I think in the context of Second Peter, the all is, I think, fairly governed by you, plural. Um, I think that's at least a reasonable way to read it. Um, and I think if you press all out, it starts to stop, it stops making much sense if, you, if it really means it. If the, if the reason for Jesus' delay... Apparent delay. I mean, it's perfect on God's time. If the reason the Lord has waited 2,000 years to come is he doesn't want anyone to perish, does not appear to be working. Fair enough? I mean, I don't see how that makes sense. Um, if the reason why the Lord has delayed is he doesn't want any of you to perish, that makes a bit more sense to me. Um, but that's my off-the-cuff exegesis of, of Second Peter. Um, so... I reserve the right to change my mind later. But no, I've looked at that before. That's my best take on it, is, um, is he's not making a bigger statement than that. In the same, I'd say the same thing about uh, 1 Timothy 2, the passage read earlier, God desires all men to be saved. Not that I think he's saying he doesn't want each and every individual man, but given that he said, I want you to pray for all men, for kings, for rulers, clearly the all in 1 Timothy 2 is all types Kings, rulers, and all, sort, all sorts of people, which is then how I'd suggest governs the next statement. Because God wants all sorts of people to be saved. He's not speaking to the issue of whether or not God wants each and every last person to be saved. Rather, pray for all sorts of people because God wants to save all sorts of people. Um, I think it's probably the best way to read First Timothy 2, um, but could be wrong. But I'm not persuaded that I am. Any, any other questions on that? Um, oh, that's fine. Go, Wanda. Well, what verses do you go to when you, everything you've prayed for, I mean, everybody's kind of in a spell of, you prayed that person would live, they died. You prayed the baby would live, she died. You prayed your neighbor got the job, got fired. So what verses do you go to? I lately have kind of found myself having a discussion with my neighbor, and then I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, God knows what he wants to do. Why are we wasting our time? So I know that's not true thinking. I just wondered. I'd like some verses. No, but it, it, that, the, the, the experience of living that happens, I'd probably go to Psalm 89. I had a chance to teach through Psalm 89 a couple of years ago, and Psalm 89 is striking. It, it, uh, it, it's comforting that God, in other words, I'd say this, God has given his people songs to sing and prayers to pray even when what they're experiencing appears to be the exact opposite of what he promised. Here's, here's a brief overview structurally of Psalm 89. The Davidic covenant and God's promises to David made in 2 Samuel 7 clarified in Psalm 2, are celebrated. They're absolutely celebrated. And then he's going to state how apparently every single one of them has been broken. And the psalm is 
does not have a solution for the tension. And when I taught this however many years ago, my point was, as long as you can still praise in the first half, feel free to lay out your vexation, your confusion, and the, hey, what's going on of the second half of the psalm? As long as you can still, God is faithful. I have no idea how he's being faithful here, but I know he's faithful. Yet it looks like he's not. That's, so let me just read Psalm 89. I will sing, oh, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. Forever with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Salah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea when its waves rise. You still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. That's sort of a biblical nickname for Egypt. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and all that is in it. You've founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You are of a mighty arm, strong in your hand, High your right hand, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. And I just flipped the wrong page. Give me a second. Um, there we go. Nope. There we go. Um, no, am I in the wrong psalm? No, I'm not in the wrong psalm. I haven't flipped back to the right page. There we go. Um, here we go. Okay. Um, few are the glory of their strength. By your favor, your horn, our horn is exalted. For your shield belongs, for our shield belongs to the Lord, O King, to the Holy One of Israel. I know this is a long psalm, but just keep reading. Not a hint of the dilemma that's coming. That's just all praise, right? Just celebratory praise. Okay. Verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake me, and he's just reiterating the Davidic covenant, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my covenants, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity of stripes, but I will not remove my steadfast love. 
from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. And his throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies, Salah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease, to cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. See, apparent repudiation of all the promises he just celebrated. And here's his synthesis. He doesn't know how this works. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which way your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Lord, here's what you said, and it was wonderful. And here's what's happened, and it appears to be completely contradicting all that you said. I don't understand. Please come. Please hear. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 89. And I love, in one sense, the fact that there isn't resolution. It's okay to not know how this is working out. It's okay. Lord, we asked for the job. He got fired. We asked for the kid to live. The kid died. We asked for... Every... You said ask. You said ask believing. We did. You said no, 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 no right? Um, and God has given his people songs to sing when that happens. Like, you're not off the script. I mean, that's, that's, at the end of the day, I would say, if this is con- talking about the Babylonian captivity, which I think likely, um, I, I think if you see what appears to be the end of the Davidic line, there is no Davidic king. Temple's destroyed. The place God chose is desolate. The ark is part of a golden statue somewhere. Um, and, and you see that. I thought you gave us this land forever. I mean... That would fit well. I can't say with certainty it's the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity would make perfect sense. Um, Yet we see how in God's plan he didn't break any of his promises and how he was using this to to bring glory to his name. He was protecting the seed of the woman and the Davidic king who would come. He hasn't broken any of his... So from our vantage point, we can say, okay... You know, and we can see from our vantage point when Joseph was faithful and thrown in jail and accused of rape and all these things, and he's languishing. The text is like many years go by, and we read it in three seconds, and Joseph lived through them. And we know the end of the story, or Job, or any number of other places where people don't know why it's going on. God's written songs and prayers for people in that situation. So 
just trust what Jesus said. Whatever you think has happened, when his children ask for a fish, he doesn't give them a serpent. When he asks for bread, he doesn't give them a stone. He doesn't say when they ask for bread, he gives them bread. He just says you can be certain he doesn't give stones when he asks for bread. Um, So it's not a guarantee that you will always have everything you pray for, but he's not mocking you. He's not tricking you. He's not um, torturing you. He, I don't know what he's doing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I find um, even thinking about God's faithfulness in my life, reading Christian biographies, we get glimpses at how what appears to not be working is actually working for, for glory. Um, and it helps remind us about God's faithfulness. But by all means, be perplexed and confounded and don't feel that you have to have an answer to what God is doing. He's given you songs to sing and prayers to pray in precisely that situation. And, um, you know, ask that God might (laughs) make sense of this sooner than later. But it's okay to be there. It's perfectly fine to be there. Like, that's one of the things I find so comforting with the Psalms. Apparently, God expected us at times to be in places like this. So I'm not somewhere off the script. I'm not someplace that Christians should never be. Okay, then I can trust him here. I can trust him here. In fact, if Psalm 89 is about the Babylonian captivity, it's interesting about the very next psalm, uh, the composition of the book of Psalms. Psalm 89 is the final psalm of book 2, I believe, um, or book 3. It's got that double amen and amen formula. Book 3. It's the final psalm of book 3. And look how book 4 picks up. The only psalm of Moses in the Psalter. And... It's quite possible that whoever's arranging the compiler of the book of Psalms is, there's, there's, well, not quite possible. There is clearly at time information, intentionality in the arrangement of the book of Psalms. And I think this is one of the places. Psalm 90 looks to God's faithfulness before the land. Look how it opens up. If indeed Psalm 89 is the failure of the Davidic, the apparent failure of the Davidic dynasty and the promises to David in the Babylonian captivity, O Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever were formed, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We may be taken from the land, but who in fact is our dwelling place? God is our dwelling place. It's entirely possible the compiler of the book of Psalms puts in a Psalm of Moses precisely, God was your homeland even when there was no promised land as of yet. God was faithful before the land. He can be faithful off the land. I, I, I think it highly likely the, the, it's the only psalm of Moses that enters the Psalter, and it's right here. And I don't think it's for nothing that that follows 89. Um, the, the reminder that, hey, God was good to you too before you had land, wasn't he? He was, he was always your dwelling place. He was always your inheritance. So if you're off the land, what have you lost? That, I think something like that's going on. But we are over time, way over time. I will let you go. Thank you all, and uh, see you next week.